you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This evening we come in our series to the 12th and 13th verse of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So hear God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. I think you will readily recognize that we live in a society and culture that celebrates independence. Independence is defined in Webster's Dictionary as free from the influence, guidance, or control of others. And often accompanying this independence is a prideful spirit of self-centeredness. And this self-centered independence becomes evident in the attitude, I can just take care of myself, I don't need anybody else helping me, I don't need anyone else telling me what to do. And this kind of a spirit of independence is actually considered a hallmark of our country, um, due in large part probably to the fact that our country was born out of a struggle for independence. It's rather interesting to compare our country's history as it's taught in our classrooms with how the same history is taught in England. Having gone to school in the United States, I'm assuming uh, for all of you here, you've been indoctrinated in the U.S. perspective. And our perspective is that England was high-handed and overbearing in their approach and in their attitude to the colonies. And the English perspective is that our forefathers were a bunch of ungrateful rebels who forgot that they were settlers of English colonies. And, of course, we can go back and forth about all of the various arguments that are brought forth and the proof for them and so forth. Um, Regardless of who was right, out of this struggle came a war. And looking back at our history with England, I think it can be argued, it is argued from both sides, that, that, and uh, I think some, that uh, uh, both sides were right in some ways and wrong in others. On the one hand, it is argued that England was hard to get along with and that they abused their authority with unnecessarily harsh demands. And the colonies, on the other hand, it can be argued, did not always have a submissive spirit to those in government over them. But to this, to this day, we find this independent spirit in the citizens of our country. As a nation, our citizens do not like government and do not like authority. And this is an analogy to what can happen in the church. It can happen that the elders of the church la- act like an imperialistic monarch and throw their weight around. They make demands on people, on, on the members of the church that's outside of their office and outside of scripture and uh, they act harshly they act unloving in their dealings with church members and on the other hand there's also a spirit of independence that sometimes enters the church in the form of church members who want to cast off all authority they don't want an elder telling them what to do and so they don't treat their elders with respect and sometimes it even happens that a congregation goes to war with its leaders But as we find here in our text um, and elsewhere in Scripture, God wants peace in his church. There is a time and place for war in in the context of nations, and we could spend some time debating about how we as a country had every right to go to war against England. 
But in the church, there must never be war. And there will be conflicts, yes, from time to time, because the church is made up of sinners. But there is a right and there is an orderly way to deal with conflict. And we know that God does not tolerate bitterness among believers. You must not be a Christian who holds a grudge or who refuses to forgive your neighbor. Conflicts, disagreements, problems must be resolved in a biblical way with the confession of sin and with repentance and forgiveness. And so it is that the church must not be a place of war, but a place of peace. And it will be to the degree that sinners know the God of, of grace and know his grace in Christ. There will be peace when the love of God that willingly sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die for sinners, when that love is shed abroad in our hearts. We will begin to love as we should. <clears throat> Nevertheless, it's a sad reality that because of the remnants of sin, because of our, uh, of our remaining sinfulness, conflicts do arise in the church. And again, it should be pointed out that sometimes they arise because of church leaders who act in ways that are sinful and destructive. And God gives us in his word a good number of texts that are directed toward church leaders and texts which explain how they are to use their office for the good of the sheep. But that's not the particular emphasis of the text before us this evening. The text before us this evening is directed primarily toward you as members of the church. And originally, as it was directed to the members of the church in Thessalonica, it was meant to end a conflict that apparently was arising in the church because of a wrong attitude that they had toward the elders of the church. We don't know the details of the conflict, but we do know there was a lack of peace. So that Paul ends verse 13 by saying, be at peace among yourselves. It's worth noting that he doesn't say, be at peace with your leaders. And by Paul saying what he does, it does hint that the leaders of the church also need to work at cultivating peace. And of course, peaceful relations always require uh, it's always a two-way street requiring both parties to do their part. Not, there's not going to be peace in the church unless everyone, including the leaders, is doing their part to act in a Christ-like way. And yet Paul's emphasis in these verses is on how the members of the church in particular need to change. The primary reason for a lack of peace is the attitude of the people. It seems that they have little to no respect for authority. The result is that they're not listening to their leaders. They were perhaps even opposing their leaders. And the problem in a nutshell is that that they're not being submissive to those whom God has placed in authority over them. And the problem is, of course, not limited to the church of Thessalonica. This is recorded here in Scripture for the church of all ages because it's a problem in the churches of all ages. It's a problem because of our our sinful human nature. We do not want to submit to authority. It's not something that anyone naturally enjoys doing. In fact, it's part of our sinful nature to rebel against those who tell us what to do. Children and teenagers naturally rebel against parents and teachers. Citizens are constantly trying to find ways uh, to weasel out of having to follow rules and regulations of the government. It's part of our problem as proud and self-centered people that we don't want anybody interfering with our plans and lifestyles. And it's this mentality that explains why some members of the church think and act like the, the elders are being nosy or being bossy 
when they take spiritual oversight of the congregation. And we see even a particular mention here of uh, when the elders, uh, of the uh, of elders admonishing believers, and it seems that that is especially disliked in some circles. Uh, it's disliked when elders uh, bring attention to people's sin. And this dislike of human authority is only a symptom of a much deeper problem. You must understand that the real issue here is with God. If you have a problem submitting to human authorities, there's no doubt but that you have a problem submitting to the authority, the ultimate authority of God. Romans 13 reminds us, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And this is true not only of the authority of civil government, which is Paul's primary emphasis there, but we can also apply the principle to the submission that's required of parents and of teachers and school, of elders in the church. These are authorities that God has put in place. And if you refuse to submit to them, you are refusing to submit to God himself. Find another example of this idea in uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 7, where God tells his prophet Ezekiel, But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. God's prophet Ezekiel What God's prophet Ezekiel was experiencing was what God's leaders still experience today, where many members are not willing to listen to their elders. Another way we could describe the problem is to say that people are unwilling to be taught. And in some cases, this is because of the prideful attitude that they think they already know it all. And they feel like they don't have any need for an elder to be explaining anything to them. For others, they don't have a problem with the office per se. They just don't like their particular elders. And the reasons given for the dislike could be one of thousands. Um, The elder in question said something or did something they didn't like. It could be as trivial as they don't like how he dresses. Um, He doesn't do this or that according to such and such standard. In most cases, there is no real legitimate reason for their dislike And it becomes evident that it's really a spiritual issue, that really what is ultimately at stake is that they don't like how the elder has put his finger on some sin in their lives. And so what often accompanies this attitude of dislike, which proves that it's really a spiritual issue, is an argumentative, critical spirit. There even may be evidence of hate and bitterness toward the elders of the church. As a result, whatever the elder says or elders, whatever they say and do is unfairly picked apart. Everything the elder says and does is somehow wrong. The rebel even enjoys finding fault with the elders because this is how he can justify his sin and rebellion. Same spirit of rebellion reveals itself in a church member refusing to meet with the session. It may be that the elders of the church are concerned about someone's spiritual well-being and they want to meet with that person in order to help him and the person keeps putting them off. That's rebellion. It's a failure to submit to God. It's a breaking also of membership vows. The fifth question asked of all professing members of the church is, do you agree to submit in the Lord to the government of this church and in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life to heed its discipline? 
And so I hope it is that none of you would ever refuse to meet with the session. That would be a sign of sinful rebellion. There's also another way that rebellion takes, uh, another form that it takes, um, a uh, disturbing trend of our day and ages for church members to leave the church and go elsewhere rather than to face discipline at all. It happens far too often that a session is working with someone to lead them to repentance and the person hijacks the whole process by just walking away and joining another church. Of course, the person will argue they had no choice to leave as the elders were handling things wrongly. Let's say for the sake of argument that that was true, that the elders were wrong. That's certainly possible. Then that person under discipline has the obligation as a member of the church to bring a formal complaint or charges of sin against those elders for wrongdoing. He can, he must appeal to the higher authority of presbytery or the general assembly, but never is it godly and biblical to just walk away from a conflict, to walk away from discipline. When you have a problem with someone, you must go to that person and talk to the person about your concerns, and if that doesn't get you anywhere, you gather witnesses and you go again. If that doesn't do any good, you go to the leaders of the church for help, and if your conflict happens to be with elder leaders of the local church, then you go to the leaders of the presbytery or of the general assembly. That's the Lord's instruction from Matthew 18. It's wrong to walk away from a church in order to get away, to get out from under God-ordained authority or because you won't deal with conflict biblically. And yet this happens. It happens on a regular basis. It's part of man's unwillingness to submit to God and his appointed leaders. It should be disturbing how prevalent it is in our culture and in our churches for people to show little or no respect for those in authority. I think some years ago, in a very general way, of course not in every case, but I think in general people in authority were honored and revered more than they are today. More generally, treated with respect. Even if you didn't like a person in office, at least out of respect for the office, you were polite. Today, people don't hesitate to publicly criticize the president of our country in demeaning and disrespectful ways. Um, children talk back to their parents. In a similar way, some people feel free to publicly instruct elders on how to do their jobs in a way that's not polite. And society is partly to blame for this. We live in a society where everybody thinks that he's an authority. Um, everybody has the, the right to speak his mind. Uh, movie stars feel the need to instruct us on everything from how to vote to what clothes we should wear. And we ought to wonder, what makes them think it's their place to tell us how to live? You ought to have the same reaction toward those who take it upon themselves to instruct the session on how to run the church. And what is worse is that too often such critics are not willing to rest until they get their way. Now, sometimes their complaints are legitimate. It happens that elders make unwise decisions. It happens that elders even make wrong, unbiblical decisions. And if you have such a concern, then you have every right to meet with the session and talk about your concern. It's not a lack of submission uh, to make an appeal to, the, to your elders, to express your concerns, to ask questions. It is a lack of submission, though, to take elders to task on the basis of unfounded accusations and personal opinions. And you can even disagree with the elders on some issue and not be lacking in submission. 
You are being submissive as long as you, you keep lines of communication open and are willing to receive instruction from your elders and don't insist on your own way. It's the prideful and unsubmissive who insist that they are right on an issue while refusing to do further study. And what reveals a lack of submission is an unwillingness to learn and worse, an insistence that your view has to be the one taught in the church. I'm sure you're familiar with the expression backseat driver. Well, there are some sheep in Christ's fold who are backseat shepherds. And the verses before us this evening confront those in the church who are not living in submission to God's authority. And to put it in a, in a positive uh, form, you are to be a person who, out of love for God, and for the peace of his church, submits to the elders of the church. And in these verses, God is very clear about how you are to treat the elders in the church. There are two main instructions here, one in verse 12, the other in verse 13. In verse 12, you are told to respect those who labor among you. And in verse 13, you are told to esteem them very highly in love. <clears throat> his first command to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That word translated respect means to notice or to pay attention to. And that's, that accounts for the translation, recognize those who labor among you. Um, some translations word it that way. But in this context, it means to have regard for someone, even to cherish someone, to recognize someone in the sense of giving them recognition and respect or consideration. The word means most literally to know, and the connotation here is to know someone fully so that you appreciate that person's true worth. Um, this understanding of the Greek accounts for William Hendrickson in his commentary offering the translation, which is very similar to the ESV. He says, he puts it this way, now we request you brothers to appreciate those who labor among you. I'm trying to tie these various shades of meaning together. I would say that the calling of this first command is to pay attention to who your elders are and to what your elders are called to do in order that you might begin to recognize and appreciate their role in the church and in your life. So first take notice of the fact that there are elders and they are over you. It says to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So in the church, there are men who are called by Christ to be over you in the sense of being over you in a position of authority. This being over you doesn't mean that elders are somehow superior, that they're somehow better than you. Being over you has nothing to do with, uh, with a power trip. But what it does mean is that it is the elders' God-given place and calling to oversee your spiritual life. It's the session's business to teach you. It's the session's business to guide you about what to believe and how to live as a Christian. The elder is in a position of rule. He is the superintendent of Christ's sheep. And the fact of the matter is that elders have been called by Christ to do this work in his church. Paul uses the word labor to describe this work. Those who labor among you. This is a word that speaks of toil. This is a word that speaks of work that requires strenuous effort and results in weariness. 
It is not easy to be a good elder in the church. If you understand the true nature of the work, you know that it is not something to be taken lightly. It is not an office that you undertake for reasons of personal gain. It's not what you do if you crave personal prestige and honor because it's a heavy responsibility to shepherd God's people the way that he calls it to be done. It is a position of labor. It involves laboring in God's word so that God's people are fed consistently and accurately with the truth of God's word over against the many errors that are all around us. It takes effort to study God's word and then to apply that word in the light of our culture. It has worked just to keep up with all the heresies that are constantly circulating in the church world. Those of you who have taught Sunday school, you know that teaching is work. And then there is the the elder laboring in prayer over the sheep who have so many needs and concerns. Paul talks in another place about one of the the things that he describes as part of his, the suffering of his life is bearing the burdens of the churches. Like Paul, elders are burdened by the lack of spiritual progress in the lives of God's people. There's There's always weakness in God's people that needs to be addressed. There's always more work to be done. And remember that the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't take a rest, ever. And so the elders must never slack in their labor of protecting the flock. Part of the elders' work is the unpleasant business of admonishing. Paul writes in verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you important part of the elder's labor is to admonish those under his rule, which that word admonish means literally to put people in mind to obey God's ordinances. Admonishing is when an elder comes to you and points out an area of weakness in your life and on the basis of scripture tells you what God would have you to do. Admonishing in our book of church order is listed as the first step in discipline. As the first step, it's a warning, and it's a warning that comes without a lot of emotion. It's more about instruction than about laying down the law. A rebuke is the next step, and a rebuke is harsher. A rebuke is an elder coming to you with tension in his voice because you're not paying attention to God's admonition. People of God, it should never happen that an elder has to bring anything more than an admonition. An admonition ought to be enough to move you to change a sinful behavior. It ought not to be that an elder has to keep coming to you about a particular sin with harsher and harsher warnings. Rebukes come only because a person is not submitting to God's rule through his elders. Be a wonderful evidence of God's work in your life if a session has to do nothing more than admonish. It'd be great if he never has to admonish, but if that's what he has to do, it'd be great if it was... It required nothing more than that. And then we come to the second part of Paul's instruction. What a wonderful thing it is when God's people esteem their elders very highly in love because of their work. Not very highly in love because because of such a wonderful personality, but because of their work. Submission is about loving your elders because of what they do to protect you spiritually. You ought to esteem them, the text here says in a very literal way, super abundantly. You ought to esteem them, the ESV says, very highly, but the idea is super abundantly in love because of their work. 
There are various reasons why people like elders. Hinted at this just a moment ago. Elder A has a wonderful demeanor and a very pleasant personality. Elder B has good business sense. Elder C always says what you want to hear. You get the idea there are all kinds of superficial, personal, earthly reasons why an elder may be liked or disliked. It really ought to not matter how likable or unlikable an elder is. The question is this, is he laboring in the church for the sake of the Lord's sheep? And is he doing it biblically? That's a very legitimate question. And at the heart of that, would, is he bringing you God's word? You must esteem elders not for who they are or aren't personally, but because of their work. Their work is on behalf of Christ. It's a work that protects you spiritually. What you must realize, people of God, is that there are elders in the church exactly because Christ loves you. The church is Christ's great work. There's a body here, gathered here and in many other places, because Christ was willing to humble himself even to the death of the cross. He was willing to suffer and to die for sinners like you and me. Christ's death upon the cross is the only reason there is a church. Without Christ, we would all be rebels against God, dead in our trespasses and sins, without hope of eternal life. But Jesus Christ, God's Son, came and he died for us. He offered up his body as a sacrifice for our sins. He bled and he died so that we could be forgiven. People of God, Christ loves you. And he wants you as his sheep to know the joys of knowing him as Lord and Savior. He wants to protect you from all that would harm you. And it's the same love that sent Christ to the cross that compelled him to put elders in the church over his sheep. He loves you and he wants to protect you. He wants to guide you. And if Christ himself were to come among us, I would ask, would you, dare, would you even dare to say no to his admonitions? Would you dare to, to, to say no to his instruction? Would you be unwilling to hear him? I can imagine you say, saying, no, of course I would gladly submit to his teaching. Well, would you? Your elders are Christ's representatives, sent in his name. How you respond to your elders is your response to Christ. Respect those who labor among you, esteem them in love for their work's sake. These words are the Lord speaking to you. The Holy Spirit had these words recorded because this is what God wants you to hear. Will you? Will you obey out of submission to him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would enable us to take these words to heart to apply them as they ought to be applied, that, Father, we would be those who respect and those who esteem uh, the elders that you have placed uh, in the church over us as your sheep. Um, Father, we, th we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you, Father, that you, in fact, protect us from a spirit of independence by bringing us into your body, by putting leaders over us. And we pray, Father, that our relationship with our leaders would be be one that pleases you, that recognizes your authority. For, Father, you are the one who has placed uh, authorities over us. Father, we at the same time recognize the, the need for authorities to be acting in, in proper ways, and so we pray for that as well. But, uh, Father, we pray that you would be with us as our calling is to submit. And, uh, Father, we pray that uh, you would be pleased and uh, that we would be protected, that we would be blessed in the way of obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name.